Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here as always with John Mitchell. This week, we're going to be talking about the big games that happened before the Thanksgiving weekend, get you prepared for all the big games coming up on this Thanksgiving weekend, offer you some some dining suggestions for post-Thanksgiving bliss, and uh, send you on your way. It's good to be here with you as always, John. How are you doing today? I'm good. A little sad. This is the final regular season weekend of the college football season coming up. It's always a little depressing, but also a slate filled with fantastic rivalry games and everything kind of shaking out for conference and playoff races. So a lot of fun, but also a little bit sad. Yeah, it always is. This time of year, we always seem to to gear up and just get jazzed through the season and the end comes before we even know it. But, you know, we can't get too sad yet because there is a ton of great action on the slate this week. Rivalry week is always tons of fun. But before we get into that, we had a lot of great action in week 13. So so let's look at some of that, especially the best wins and the worst losses. Let's start with let's start with the best. Let's start with the good. So what did you see as the best win of the weekend, John? You know, in the American race this year, we've talked about, and a lot of people have talked about it being kind of a three-horse race with Cincinnati and Memphis and SMU, but Navy's been kind of just sitting there all along, flying under the radar. Um, The midshipmen had a really rough go the last time we had seen them on the field the week before against Notre Dame, but they bounced back in a big way this week and knocked off SMU 35-28 to in a win that really positions Navy to have a legitimate shot to play in the AAC championship game next week. Um, They're now six and one in the conference tied with Memphis. Uh, Obviously Memphis currently has the tiebreaker, but if Navy can go to Houston and win, all they need at that point is a Memphis loss to Cincinnati this weekend, which obviously is a, is a possibility even with a game being played at Memphis, that feels like a toss up game most likely between those two. So Navy's right there. They could easily take the AAC East if if that goes. So a huge win for them against a really quality SMU team. Um, Another big day for Malcolm Perry, who not only found a lot of running room on the ground with 195 yards, but he also threw for 162 yards and a touchdown, taking advantage of that suspect SMU secondary that we've talked about on the podcast before and actually making some plays. So I was really impressed with Navy, and now they're, you know, Right there, they got a real shot to end up playing in the AAC championship game. And then, you know, ultimately, they win the conference. They're going to be right in the thick of the the race for the New Year's Six. Yeah, it was a really big win for Navy this weekend. Uh, That set up as an elimination game, as we talked about last week. And they came through in a big way. It will be really interesting to see what happens this weekend. And we'll talk about it more when we get into the next segment. But... That American Athletic Conference race, especially in the West this year, it's been a really deep division. You know, you mentioned SMU was, you know, right there in the thick of it as well. If they'd won against Navy, all they would have needed was a Memphis loss to Cincinnati, and they would have been in the in the championship game. 
And then, you know, you look beyond that and you have, you know, obviously Houston's been a decent team this year, despite losing Derek King to the red shirt uh, after September. And you have Tulane has been right up there as well. It's been a good season for them, even as they've sort of tapered off on the second half of the season. Uh, Tulsa's been something of a giant killer at times. And uh, yeah, just top to bottom has been one of the best division races all season long. And I think we often tend to look at those power five races first, but the American has been right up there with the rest of them. So really good choice. I actually uh, stuck with group of five as well for my best win. It's, it's interesting with all the, I mean, obviously, the Ohio State win over Penn State was huge. We had, you know, Oklahoma holding on against TCU. But some of these group of five races have been just as big in the picture. And the one that got me was Hawaii winning the Mountain West, West Division, uh, with their 14-11 win over San Diego State. Um, at the beginning of the season, or before the season even started, when we were looking at these group of five races, we, we both thought that Hawaii was going to be right there in the mix at the end of the season. But I don't think either of us would have expected that they would claim the West Division the way that they did. You know, they, the Rainbow Warriors opened the year with that high-flying aerial attack. Cole McDonald was supposed to be putting up 500 yards a game. And we saw that at the beginning of the year. But the way they won against San Diego State was with their running game and their defense. You know, Cole McDonald and Chevon Cordero combined to go 22 of 35, but they only threw for 215 yards, had a touchdown and an interception. And it was really the running game and that defense. Uh, Cordero and Miles Reed each ran for 50-plus yards, and the team finished with 132 yards and a touchdown on the ground. And that was more than enough to outpace a San Diego State team that just hasn't had any offense this year. So now it's Hawaii that gets to head back to Boise for that rematch against the Broncos on the Smurf turf after... Uh, they finished their regular season at home against Army in that non-conference finale. And just what a what a testament to Hawaii bouncing back um, and, you know, getting themselves back in this race. And Nick Rolovich and this team, no matter what happens in the Mountain West Conference Championship itself, they've they've had a hell of a season so far. It's nice that one of our predictions actually goes correct because both of us in the preseason picked Hawaii to uh, to win the division and play in the conference championship game, and a lot of people kind of looked at us side-eyed for that pick in the preseason. So it's nice to see that kind of come to fruition um, as much garbage as we've dealt out in recent weeks. It's nice to see one from the preseason come back around for us. Undoubtedly. Yeah, we're not just shooting at the hip always, everybody. We do have a method to our madness, even if it doesn't always work out. But let's shift gears now. Let's look at some of the the worst losses that we had this week, because there were some really damning losses that happened on the schedule in week 13. Um, Out of all of them, what what came up is is the most abysmal of all for you? 
It's hard to really find a team, I think, that's been as disappointing this year as Washington. Um, the Huskies were, again, we've talked about before, projected in the preseason to be a, a potential playoff team, if not a real threat to make it back to the Rose Bowl again. Um, and instead, it's just been a really bad year in Seattle. Um, Jacob Eason hasn't played particularly poorly or anything like that. It's just nothing's really gone their way. If their offense is clicking, their defense isn't. If their defense is clicking, their offense isn't. They've just been really inconsistent. Very unbecoming of a Chris Peterson coached football team. And to see them just show, just be completely lifeless on Saturday night in Boulder against Colorado, falling to the Buffaloes 20 to 14 to fall to six and five on the season which is kind of shell-shocking, to be honest. Even as disappointing as they've been all year, it still was just kind of mind-blowing for me to watch and see that they were just – they look like a football team that's absolutely quit is what it reminded me of, just a team that has no desire. They know they don't have much to play for anymore, um, and they just showed nothing. Even with an extra week of preparation, having a bye week after beating Oregon State a couple weeks ago, and to come out and look that flat on the road – against a team that's been near the bottom of the Pac-12 standings all season long. That was the worst loss to me, the most disappointing loss, to just really cap off what's been one of the most disappointing seasons for the Huskies. Yeah, that was definitely a bit of a shocker when I when I saw that transpire on Saturday. And honestly, it was a bad week for the Pac-12 all around um, because what I was looking at, in terms of the worst loss for me, it was the state of Oregon. The entire state had a horrible weekend. Um, you mentioned uh, Washington not seeming to have any more fight. It'll be really interesting for the Apple Cup because Washington State showed fight on Saturday. Uh Oregon State, what a heartbreaker for them, falling 54-53 in Pullman. Uh, you know, Jake Luton looked decent. He was 22 of 40, so he wasn't as accurate as he could have been, but he threw for 408 yards and five touchdowns. You know, he kept pace in that game with Anthony Gordon. And Jermard Jefferson ran for 132 yards and two touchdowns. The Beavers were up 24-21 at halftime, but they, you know, they fell behind in that third and early fourth quarter with just under 10 minutes left. They're behind by 10 points, 42-32, but Jefferson exploded. Uh, Oregon State scored three touchdowns in the next five minutes to go back up 53-42, less than five minutes remaining. Looked like they had their sixth win sealed up before the Civil War and would get bowl eligible. But as I said, Wazoo fought. And with, you know, they scored that winning touchdown with two seconds remaining to snatch away the victory at home. And, in, you know, on one hand, it makes the Apple Cup really interesting because it looks like the Cougars could actually take it this year for the first time. And, I, I can't even remember when was the last time that Washington State won the Apple Cup. I'd have to look that back up. But, you know, Oregon State, f despite the loss, they, they had a hard-fought game, and it's been a, an incredible season all around for that team. And given what we saw from Oregon on Friday or on Saturday night as well, it, it, it could be a really competitive civil war this year uh, because the Ducks are out of the college football playoff race now after that 
31-28 defeated at Arizona State. And, you know, I've, I've talked about it before. Going to the desert is never a, a good thing for Oregon when they're highly ranked and, and have a shot at big things on the national scene. The way they lost, though, like, I, I, I'm still sitting here reeling and trying to be as objective about it as possible as, you know, duck fan extraordinaire. But they were churning out five and a half yards per carry, but they only ran the ball 28 times. Eno Benjamin ran more times than the entire duck offense did. You know, Justin Herbert was not looking great for most of that game. He was off. He went 20 of 36. He was sidearming passes. He was throwing balls into the dirt. He was, you know, fastballing things to his receivers when touch was necessary. He threw for 304 yards and two touchdowns, but he also tossed two really ugly picks. And that defense gave up 535 yards. Jaden Daniels looked great. I, I'm sure we'll talk about him more as we continue on. But at this point, Oregon can only play a spoiler. You know, the, the best they can do is, is spoil Utah's chance at the college football playoff, knock their conference completely out of the picture, earn themselves a trip to the Rose Bowl as a consequence, but honestly, at this point, the way Utah is playing, they could probably lose the Pac-12 championship and still go to the Rose Bowl. There were bigger things on the line for Oregon this season and against Arizona State. Herm Edwards' team figured them out. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in the era that we're currently in in college football, only four teams can get into the playoffs. So, I mean... It's disappointing for Oregon, still a lot to play for. If they can go beat Utah and make the Rose Bowl, win a Pac-12 title, I don't think anyone in Eugene is going to look at this season as a disappointment or in Happy Valley across the country. I don't think you'd look at that as an ultimate disappointment. That Oregon State-Washington State game, though, I know you're hung up on Oregon. That game was nuts. If you look at um, the ESPN's win probability after Oregon State recovered Washington State's onside kick with two minutes to go, they gave Oregon State a 98% chance to win the game. It's like the craziest chart ever. Like it's way up here for Oregon State and then just tanked straight down after that fourth down call that went begging. Um, I love the aggressiveness by Jonathan Smith to go for that fourth down to try to put the game away right there. Um, I thought it was the right move, to be honest, with the way that Anthony Gordon had been throwing the ball all night. I mean, he had thrown 70, he had ended up finishing with 70 pass attempts and 606 yards through the air. Um, great game. Uh, again, we've talked about Oregon State a lot on this podcast, Zach, about being one of the more impressive teams all year. They're probably going to come up just short as it pertains to bowl eligibility. But still, I don't think anyone thought we'd be talking about Oregon State and a potential bowl game this late in November. So still a hell of a job he's done. Yeah, all around. Uh, there, There's good things coming up in the future in Corvallis the way, the way this season went. So it, Oregon is a sad state at the moment, and they will have a chance to hang their heads high again. But week 13 did not play well for them. It was not a lucky 13. Shifting on, uh, what was your biggest surprise of the weekend? Because some of these results were absolutely shocking. 
I actually went back to the group of five, Zach. Um, Marshall stunningly going to Charlotte and dropping 24 to 13 was a big surprise to me. The Thundering Herd were, you know, in control of the Conference USA Eastern Division. They had the tiebreaker with Florida Atlantic off a win over the Owls earlier in the season on the road. They're just coming off an absolute shellacking of Louisiana Tech, who had been the cream of the crop in the Conference USA all year up until that game when they blew them out 31 to 10. And then they go to Charlotte and no disrespect to Charlotte. The 49ers are now bowl eligible for the first time in program history, which is a humongous feat. I just looked at Marshall as probably the best team in the Conference USA coming into last week. So the fact that they would potentially throw their season away, you know, because now Florida Atlantic has taken the lead in the East. And if they can win a home game over Southern Miss, they'll represent the Eastern division in the conference USA title game. I was just really surprised. Um, Isaiah green had a really bad day. He was only six of 17 for 86 yards and a couple interceptions. Uh, just didn't, they really couldn't put anything together on offense. This is a Marshall offense. We've seen roll up points and bunches, um, all year long. So I was really shocked by that. All credit to Charlotte. Great for their program to get the six wins to potentially get a bowl invite. Um, but really surprised to see Marshall just kind of listless on the road. Yeah. Yeah. That was not something anybody really would have expected there. Even diehard Charlotte fans would have been hard pressed to see them coming up against that Marshall team that has looked really good, especially in recent weeks. But they figured them out. They had their number and hats off to Charlotte for it. Uh, But certainly, certainly sneaked up on everybody there. And I think something else that crept up on the country was Florida International, you know, they came out and beat Miami 30 to 24. It, it, it's honestly a fun, fun addition to this fantastic, but really short rivalry series. So obviously this rivalry began in 2006 with that fun little brawl at the orange bowl. And, uh, they played there again at the orange bowl the next year. No fights broke out. Everything was Okay. But they didn't play again until last year when they met up at Hard Rock Stadium. And so you had an 11-year gap there between games for campuses that are, you know, only separated by miles, (laughs) just a few miles. So, yeah, this was the first time the Hurricanes had actually traveled on the road to play against the uh, the Panthers uh, playing away from Hard Rock Stadium. And even so, the Canes were a 21-point favorite in this road trip. Uh, FIU took a 13-0 lead in the first half and then held on as Miami ripped off 21 fourth-quarter points and really tried to pull off this comeback. But Anthony Jones, he he came up huge, 112 yards on 16 carries, and then he chugged out that 37-yard touchdown run with 217 remaining that ended up sealing the winning points. And with that win, Florida International is now bowl eligible for the third straight year, and they did it against the Hurricanes. So, You know, I don't want to say that it's a changing of the guard in South Florida or anything, but at the same time, 
programs rise and programs fall, and we've seen Miami down in recent years, and, you know, these smaller schools in the area recruit the same territory, and getting a win like that can make it just that much more interesting for even one or two guys to flip your way, and so... It'll be fun to see what happens down the road, and I hope these teams play many more times. Yeah, this easily could have been the worst loss of the week, too, for either of us. Um, a really program low for Miami, and even a bigger gut punch when you look at the other sideline. You see Butch Davis coaching Florida International, obviously the former Miami coach. You know, it had to be sweet for him to go and beat the Hurricanes like that, but man, the the reaction to this for Miami was just, you know, sad. An all-time low for the program. People saying the worst night in Miami football history. And there's been a lot of lows over the last decade plus at this point for the Hurricanes. A once proud power of the 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s has now fallen to the point that they struggle to win games like this routinely. This isn't the first time they've struggled or outright lost to a lower quality team over the last few years. So, you know, obviously Manny Diaz has his work cut out for him in Coral Gables, but man, I don't think anyone envisioned them potentially slipping up and losing this game. Credit to Butch Davis. Florida International really had a rough start to the season, but they've really turned it around over the last couple of months to get to a bowl game and just a huge win for that program for sure. Yeah, really just a season-defining win. And so, yeah, I wasn't expecting it, but it was a pleasant surprise on the weekend for just about everybody except Hurricanes fans, I would think. Well, before we take our break, John, let's look at a couple of individual performances quick. What did you? Uh, who did you want to hand out your offensive game ball to this week? You know, you talked about him earlier, and of course it's going to come back around. The poise under pressure and just the ability to make big plays in this kind of game from Arizona State freshman quarterback Jaden Daniels was just so impressive. I'm sure even as an Oregon fan, it was hard not to appreciate how well he played. Um, He obviously put up a gaudy stat line. The most impressive play of the game, though, was when it looked like – what is 24-21, Arizona State, Oregon had just scored. Oregon's defense looked like they were holding. It was a third and 16 with under four minutes to play. And Daniels uncorks a beautiful pass, one of the most beautiful passes I've seen all season, 81 yards for a touchdown to really put the final nail in Oregon's coffin. Um, Daniels obviously ended up finishing with 400 passing yards against what's been a really good Oregon defense all year. That makes it that much more impressive. 22 of 32, 408 yards and three touchdowns. Um, Just, I was really blown away. He really struggled a lot this year against better defenses, as most true freshman quarterbacks do. This felt kind of like his coming out party. Um, You know, we've been critical of Herm Edwards on the podcast before, but It's hard not to be impressed with what he's been able to do with a young quarterback like that. It's hard not to be bullish on the future in Tempe with Daniels um, behind center, the potential for them to be a really legitimate Pac-12 contender over the next few years uh, if he keeps on this developmental track. Yeah, as much as I hate to say it, Daniels was the far better quarterback in that game on Saturday. And yeah, there were a couple of times, not not just the one throw you mentioned, but there were several other long balls that he dropped right in there where 
all I was left to do on my end was scream at the TV, don't haul it in. And every time his receivers seemed to haul it in because he put it right on a dime, right in their hands. I mean, they would have had to actively toss the ball away not to be able to grip it. So hats off to him. He certainly earned the game ball this week because nobody on the Oregon team did. <laughs> and yeah, it's especially that throw you talked about there with four minutes remaining. That was that was a game killer. It, it absolutely was because all the momentum was going Oregon's way there with the two quick touchdown drives and all the, you know, everything going in their favor. So ultimately he, he earned it. And another person I think that earned a game ball this week, uh, shifting gears to some independent action, was uh, Jackson McChesney. Jackson McChesney, the running back for BYU, who set the freshman single game rushing record against UMass in just his second game getting playing time for, for the Cougars. Uh, he got some garbage time action against uh, Idaho State in, in their game against the FCS opponent. Uh, but other than that, he hadn't seen the field before this year or before the game against the Minutemen. And he didn't even get into the game until the fifth series. But he ended up running for 228 yards and two touchdowns on just 15 carries. I mean, it. It, for anybody, that's unbelievable. But to see a freshman come out and do that is amazing. And yes, yes, everybody, it was just against the Minutemen. But for, you know, for anybody to be able to rip off 200 yards against any opponent in college is impressive. And he did add two catches as well. You know, he showed off his hands out of the backfield, but... Unfortunately for him, that actually knocked down his stats because it was a net of seven yards lost. So, you know, as bad as that was, it, everything else he did was gold on Saturday. Yeah, uh, not been a banner year for UMass, but uh, definitely a great performance for a freshman running back. It's always impressive for anybody to eclipse 200 yards. It's even more impressive given the circumstances there. Yeah, I mean, in any time you get to see somebody set a single-game record for their school, they, they deserve a little bit of recognition. Shifting to the defensive game balls, I'll hand out mine first. Um, and actually, this was another one in a blowout against an overmatched team. So maybe I was just really, you know, impressed by by games against cupcakes this week or something. But Xavier McKinney, the defensive back at your favorite school, Alabama, looked really damn good on, on Saturday. You know, he had three solo tackles in the 66-3 blowout of the Catamounts. Um, but it was beyond that that he was absolutely impressive. He forced a fumble by Tyree Adams that ended up getting recovered by Patrick Sertain. Uh, he nabbed two interceptions, one of which he returned 81 yards to the house for a touchdown. And it just seemed like whenever they needed a huge play, McKinney came up big. And, you know, heading into the Iron Bowl, that's just got to be a huge confidence boost for the entire defense. The way he and pretty much everybody else on that Crimson Tide unit showed up on Saturday against an opponent they could have easily slept against. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it hasn't been your typical Nick Saban defense this year. There's not just loads and loads of dudes on that side of the ball that are going to go out there and dominate. The two deep isn't what it is, what it has been just with the youth up front. But the mainstay all year, the constant has been Xavier McKinney, who's just been phenomenal all season long. He's he should be an All American in my opinion. He's made plays like that all season long, despite the fact that he hasn't had a lot of help. He's had to come up and help in the run game more than he's probably comfortable with just because the front sevens, you know, when you're starting four or five freshmen in the front seven, they're going to make mistakes and be out of position. So he's really taken on that role in the secondary. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to see him get recognition this week because he's been making plays all season long. Uh, and the ball tends to find playmakers, even on defense. And the ball certainly found him on Saturday. Um, so I love that pick, obviously, uh, I, you know, with due respect to the quarterback down in Baton Rouge, the best player in college football this season has been playing in Columbus. We've missed him for a couple of weeks because of a, a ridiculous NCAA suspension. We could, you know, opine about that for a while. We won't get into that, but the best player in college football this year has been Chase Young. In my opinion, he's been just absolutely ridiculously dominant in every single game he's played. If he doesn't get an invite to the Heisman Trophy ceremony, if he's not a top three guy in that race, we're doing something wrong in that voting process that needs to be rebooted. He now has 16 and a half sacks on the season in just nine games. So he's roughly getting two sacks a game at this point. It was no different. I'm sure Penn State fans weren't happy to see Chase Young back out there. We're hoping that suspension would carry a third game. And honestly, Zach, if it had carried an extra game, Ohio State might not have beaten Penn State with the mistakes they made on offense. Young had to come up with several big plays to end Penn State drives. He had three sacks, four tackles for loss, finished with nine total tackles. He was everywhere, and every time Ohio State's defense had to make a play, to win that game or to come up and make a play to stop Penn State's offense. that kind of figured some stuff out in the second half. It was Chase Young who made it. Um, unbelievable performance, unbelievable season for him. To me, he's the best player in the country. Yeah, he, he certainly showed it on Saturday. He is, I mean, he's the best defensive player I've seen in college since Ndamukong Sue. And I, frankly, he's better than him at this point. And I would, I, I think any Heisman ceremony that doesn't include him this year is illegitimate. I, I think if he's not there at the downtown athletic club, whoever ends up taking the award should hand it right back because they did not, they, they got a, they got a rigged race because he should definitely be there. If he doesn't miss those two games, sorry, Zach, if he doesn't miss those two games, I think you'd have a legitimate case that we could see the first defensive Heisman, you know, since Charles Woodson, right? Because he's been that dominant. Imagine two games worth of stats, especially given the opponents the Buckeyes played that he missed. That was against Rutgers and Maryland. I mean, he missed those games. The big, the NCAA probably suspended him in interest of player safety against Maryland and Rutgers. It would have been a snuff film with him out there in those games. He might have racked up eight sacks in those two games, and we're talking about potential record-breaking season for Chase Young if he doesn't miss those games. And I think the Heisman race between him and Joe Burrow would be neck and neck at that point. Yeah, you're probably right. Honestly, I didn't even think about the opponents that he could have just absolutely blown up. 
Ryan Day would have had to take him off the field at halftime because he would have already gotten a day's worth of stats in, in that first half. We'll chew on that for a minute, everybody, as we take our first break. When we come back, we'll be looking at some Week 14 action against the spread. We'll catch you on the other side. Stay tuned. Welcome back for the second segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We've got some big games in Rivalry Week to talk about after Thanksgiving. Uh, so we're going to dive right in and look at some some key ones against the spread. The first one we're looking at today is the Commonwealth Cup as Virginia Tech heads to Charlottesville to take on Virginia in what's amounted to a de facto ACC Coastal Championship game this year. The winner gets the honor of taking on Clemson this year as the sacrificial lamb in the conference. But at the same time, that's still quite an honor. Virginia comes into this game as a two-point underdog at home, uh, but if they win, they get to become the seventh different winner of the Coastal in seven straight years since the league expanded to 14 teams. Do you think the Cavaliers can pull it off as the underdog against the Hokies this week, John? Every year, you know, it seems like Virginia finds a new creative way to lose to Virginia Tech. I think it's been 15 years since Virginia actually won this rivalry game against the Hokies. All Early on in the season, it looked like a foregone conclusion that this was going to be Virginia's year. But man, how good has Virginia Tech looked the last few weeks? I mean, if you go back to even their last, they've won three in a row. But even if you look at their fourth game, and that's fan where they lost by one at Notre Dame. I mean, the Hokies have been really impressive. It's hard not to give a lot of credit to Bud Foster in his final season as defensive coordinator in Blacksburg. The defense was really bad at the beginning of the year, but he's turned all of that around. The Hokies have pitched back-to-back shutout, shutting out Georgia Tech and Pittsburgh in back-to-back weeks. They've hit their stride at the right time. Um, As much as I would like to see Virginia win just so they can break that streak, I always hate seeing a rival team lose that many in a row because I know how painful that can be as a fan. Unless it's a rival of my team, then I hope you always lose forever and ever and you cry about it. But, you know, and also so we can get that seven different Coastal Division champion in seven years because that's the perfect epitome of what the Coastal Division has been over the last almost decade. I think Virginia Tech's playing better football. I think their defense is going to make life tough on Bryce Perkins. I think it'll probably be a low-scoring game. Obviously, the Cavaliers have a good defense as well. But I like the Hokies overall, Zach. 21-17, they take the Coastal Division. And I think they're the team that could – I don't think they'll beat Clemson, but I think they could give Clemson a better game than anyone else with the way they've been playing recently. They're certainly not going to be intimidated by the Tigers. Yeah, I I think if any defense can stand tall, especially the way – uh, Trevor Lawrence has had some issues this season. If, if any team can do make it a close and interesting contest, it'll be the Hokies. And I agree with you. The way they're playing right now, they're just on a roll. You know, you mentioned they've won three straight and then had that one-point loss at Notre Dame. But even before that, they had three wins in a row before that Notre Dame game. So they're on a, a six of seven streak right now heading into the finale. And at the same time, Virginia has won four of their past five. 
with the only loss coming by a touchdown at Louisville and a, a damn good Louisville team as well. So the Cavaliers are an underdog at home, and I think ultimately Virginia Tech does win this game. I think they'll get a late score to make it like a 10-point deficit, but I think, it, again, it's going to be a defensive battle, maybe something like 17-7. Uh, as they prevent the Cavaliers from becoming that seventh team in seven seasons. Well, we're on a start again, everybody. We seem to be agreeing at least on that one. Let's push forward and see if we can get some disagreement in our next game, which is the de facto uh, championship game in the American Athletic Conference. Uh, given the fact that it will decide what actually happens in the championship game a week later. Cincinnati heads to Memphis as a a 9.5 point underdog. And honestly, I was really surprised by that line. Uh, But we have seen Cincinnati have some struggles in recent weeks putting away teams. Do you think Vegas got this right, John? I, to me, this game's a just outright toss-up. Memphis is at home, so I think they should be favored. I think these teams are pretty close. But almost a double-digit spread is way too much for this game, in my opinion. Um, it's a much bigger game for Memphis than it is Cincinnati because Memphis has to win to clinch the AAC uh, title game. Burst. Cincinnati's already clinched their spot after beating Temple last week. So much bigger game for Memphis kind of comes down to Cincinnati. Do they want to see Memphis again, or do they want to go, you know, completely balls out to try to beat Memphis so they end up playing Navy in the AAC title game? Uh, We've seen these scenarios play out before in the past. A couple years ago, I think it was UAB um, against, I forget who they played, but they lost the week before and then came out and blew that same team out in the Conference USA title game the next week. Um, So these games are always kind of interesting when you're looking at a potential rematch in just one week's time. Um, I think Memphis is going to win because they're the home team, but I think it'll be closer than the the spread would indicate there. Cincinnati keeps it close, but Memphis wins uh, 34-30 is what I have. The Tigers winning and clenching a rematch with the Bearcats the next week. Yeah, I I think it will be a really good game. The one you were thinking about in Conference USA was Middle Tennessee. It was basically uh, Middle Tennessee won and got the right to host in Murfreesboro the next weekend. And yeah, UAB went up there and just dominated the following week. Um, This one's interesting, though, because Cincinnati does have incentive. If If they win... Not only do they play Navy, but they get to host the American Athletic Conference championship game at Nippert Stadium. So, obviously, home field advantage is something worth playing for when you're playing for a conference championship in uh, a game that is played on campus. As I said, though, the Bearcats have played some really close contests in recent weeks, and they've been against teams that aren't nearly as good as Memphis is. Uh, The Tigers continue to blow out opponents, as we saw most recently in that 49-10 demolition on the road of South Florida. And, you know, I think Cincinnati is good enough, especially that defense, to hamstring Brady White a bit to make uh, Kenneth Gainwell have some, you know, some troubles finding running room. 
But at the same time, we saw Patrick Taylor break back out in the last game against the Bulls with a couple of touchdown runs. And he's starting to look healthy again. And I think with the one-two punch of Gainwell and Taylor on the ground, you've got you've got a backfield that's damn near as good as Daryl Henderson, Patrick Taylor, and Tony Pollard were last year as a group. So I think Cincinnati's going to hold this close. I'm I'm with you there. I think they they cover, but they're not getting the win at the Liberty Bowl. It, Memphis is too jacked up, and those stakes are too high, and they're not going to let a midshipman team that they beat swoop in at the last minute and take the division. So yeah, I'm with you. I think it's I something like you know thirty eight thirty four. Two for two. Oh, well, everybody, I'm sorry. Well, let's see. We, we've we got the game to talk about, so so maybe let's, let's move on there to Ann Arbor. Uh, Ohio State heads to Michigan this week as a nine-and-a-half-point favorite. That line seems to be coming up a lot this week, 9.5. Um, but that was bet down from an opening line of plus 12 Michigan. So, obviously, betters think this one's going to be closer than the odds makers did when they first set that line. Um, But do you think Michigan has any chance of keeping this close against the Buckeyes, John? They have a chance. I just don't think they're going to. Um, This is a massive game. It's going to be, it's wild to think about how different the season's going to feel for Jim Harbaugh and Michigan solely based on the outcome of this game. Obviously, Michigan can't win the Big Ten which was the goal at the beginning of the season. But if they can finally beat Ohio State and get to 10-2, and would easily clinch a spot in a New Year's Six Bowl after doing so. I think this season's thought of very fondly and positively. But a loss and another 9-3 and finish, another, you know, Citrus or Outback Bowl or something like that for the Wolverines would be disappointing for sure. It would be Harbaugh would go to 0-5 against Ohio State if they can't win this game. We talked about in the preseason that this was the year Michigan had to finally beat Ohio State. I don't think that we thought Ohio State was going to be quite this good, though, uh, coming into the year. I've been on this train all season, or for half the season at this point, that Ohio State's the best team in the country. Um, the Buckeyes made a few critical errors last week against Penn State. You take those off the board, that game's not as close as it turned out to be. Um, I think Ohio State's the best team in the Big Ten. I think they're the best team in the entire country. I just I think this game's going to go pretty similar to when Michigan played at Wisconsin earlier in the year. Obviously, the Wolverines have been a much better team recently. I just can't imagine Michigan's offense is going to find much success against that Ohio State defense. And as good as Michigan's defense has been all season long, I don't think you can keep that backfield combo of Justin Fields and J.K. Dobbins down an entire game. Uh, I see Ohio State running away with this and winning by 17 or so. So I had 31-14 Buckeyes is what stuck out in my mind. Yeah, I had 45-14. So I think it's just going to be massive. You know, Ohio State is in a position where they want the one seed and they want to make sure that they have the one seed because there's, you know, if everything goes to chalk in the next couple weeks, it's going to be... Ohio State or whoever emerges out of the SEC as the one seed. I, I think I think it's pretty fair to say that's going to happen. And then 
The 2-3 game is going to be whoever doesn't get that against Clemson. And I think the drop-off between Clemson at this point, the way they're playing right now, and whoever ends up getting into that number four spot is huge. So Ohio State's going to be amped up for this game. And two, you know, there's two key stats that really just have me thinking this is going to be a blowout. One of those is... Ohio State boasts the top scoring offense in the country. Number two is they boast boast the top scoring defense in the country. They have the widest scoring margin of any team in the country, and that's even after quote unquote only winning by eleven against a top ten Penn State team. You know, the Wolverines are trying to break this seven game losing streak against the Buckeyes, and this was definitely supposed to be the year with Urban Meyer retired and Jim Harbaugh getting a fresh start against Ryan Day. But this Buckeyes team is just too good. They're holding opponents scoreless on one out of every three trips to the red zone, and the Wolverines just do not have the firepower to hang with that Ohio State offense. So yeah, 45-14, Ohio State's going to roll at the big house, finish the regular season undefeated, and set themselves up for a college football playoff run or an absolute disappointment in the Big Ten championship game, which is highly unlikely at this point. Maybe next year, Jim. Yeah, maybe next year. But yeah, I you know at the same time I think he's done enough to be there next year. So that that's another thing as well. I you know I think Michigan fans nine and three looks really bad when your expectations are that high. But don't go the route of Nebraska and throw away a Bo Pelini. That would be that would be my corollary there. Don't don't throw away a good coach thinking you can automatically get yourself a great one. Well, we got a couple more games to look at, everybody, so let's keep running down this slate. And we got one that's near and dear to John's heart here with the Iron Bowl being played on the plains at Jordan-Hare Stadium. Alabama will be heading on the road as a a three-and-a-half-point favorite. Do you think that they can win the Iron Bowl by enough to impress their way into the college football playoff, John? No, I think this is going to be like one of those iron bowls that makes me want to vomit for 60 consecutive minutes because, you know, it's crazy to think about the three and a half points feel so low for Alabama against Auburn and iron bowl where both teams are ranked in the top 15. But if, you know, Tua Tungvaluwa was taking snaps for Alabama, this spread would be closer to two touchdowns, I think, coming into this game. I think this game is almost impossible to predict, Zach, because we just don't know enough about Mac Jones. We don't know enough um, of how he's going to respond on the road. He's made two starts, both at home against Arkansas and Western Carolina. Your guess is as good as mine about which one of those teams is actually better than the other this season. So, you know, obviously he looked impressive in those games. This is going to be the first actual test he's faced. It's a hostile road environment. It's against a great Auburn defense. I think Alabama is really going to need to run the ball effectively in this game to have a shot to take some pressure off him. They'll need Najee Harris to make some plays against that really stout Auburn front seven. And then they'll have to hope that I think that they've learned, I guess, how to defend quarterback runs a little bit better than they have most of the season because you know Gus Malzahn is going to run Bo Nix until 
the tread falls off the tires in this game, trying to do misdirections and stuff like that to get him an open space and do what he does best, prevent him from throwing the ball down the field and making mistakes that we've seen him make too often in big games this season for Auburn to come out on top. I think it's a toss-up game. Um, I don't feel good about any of it, to be honest with you. Um, I'm going to pick Alabama because I'm a homer. I, I couldn't stomach myself to pick Auburn, but I can tell you I don't feel great about the pick, to be honest. But I'll take Alabama, uh, and I'll say they cover just so I'm not uh, trying to hedge and pick them by three. I'll take Alabama 31-24, game-winning touchdown drive by Mac Jones to, to win the Iron Bowl. You know, I, I would be shocked if you picked otherwise. And at the same time, I completely understand why you're hesitating. Because Auburn's run defense is good enough to force Mac Jones to win the game. And if that happens, if they can bottle up Harris on the ground, Mac Jones is going to have a hard time beating a top 25 secondary. The, the Tigers are legit. I think the one thing working in Bama's favor is they've got the top-ranked punt return unit in the country. They have the opportunity to flip uh, field position. But at the same time, I, I think you're right not to be confident. I saw what Auburn can do in working a bit of magic in that season opener against the Ducks. And on it, I, I hate to say it, but I think this week the magic runs out for Alabama as the Tigers win outright, score a late touchdown, win this one, you know, a 31-28. I, I think they get that late surprise and throw a wrench into the SEC picture in terms of what the college football playoff looks for the league getting two teams in. So... We got some disagreement, at least. You know, maybe that'll work in your favor. No, honestly, I mean, my, my head tells me to pick Auburn. My heart is is crimson, though. I can't. I'm not picking against Alabama on the Iron Bowl. I wouldn't feel good about that. So I totally understand the pick. Logically, it makes perfect sense. It's hard to bet on a young quarterback making his first road start in a rivalry game with everything on the line. It's going to take him coming out and just – immersing himself in Crimson Tide lore for Alabama to win the game. Or, like you said, a big punt return or two from Jalen Waddle, who's the best punt returner in college football, making a couple of big plays, which he's certainly more than capable of. The fact that anyone's still kicking to that guy at this point of the season is just maddening. I love it because I love seeing him return punts, and it's great, but I would kick every ball out of bounds if I was the opponent. Yeah, there are just certain return guys that – I've never understood why you just don't boot it out of bounds. And uh, I say that as somebody who's watched several great returners beat some of my favorite teams over the years that way. But that's life, and hopefully they'll kick to him on uh, Saturday for you. Let's move on to the final game before we take our second break here. We've got the a, a game that's nearer to my heart, actually, here. Uh, Wisconsin heads to Minneapolis for the battle for Paul Bunyan's axis here in a rivalry game that has some bigger stakes than it usually does. Uh, Minnesota's played a great season so far, and this game is the de facto division championship game right now because the winner gets the rights to go to Indianapolis and face Ohio State. The Golden Gophers are a two-point underdog at home, but... I, I, 
I personally am a little bit surprised about that, the way they've played this year. Um, do you think it's fair for them to uh, get those points at home? Yeah, you know what, Zach? I'm actually going to defer to you, and I'm going to let you take this one. This is your neck of the woods, your Badgers. I want to hear what you have to say first. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, that that's great. I, you know, I think Jonathan Taylor is going to test the Gophers' uh, run defense. Uh, they're a the 27th ranked run defense in the FC in the FBS. Really great group. Uh, the Gophers have a good front seven that's gonna gonna make some noise. Um, but Taylor has to get it done because you know we've already talked about what a great secondary that uh, Minnesota has, and I don't think Jack Cone has the the juice to to win the game by himself. So if they're able to bottle up Taylor at all, it's a it's a scary proposition. At the same time, looking at the Minnesota offense, Tanner Morgan and his receivers, uh, Rashad Bateman and the rest of them have been looking really good in recent weeks. And we've seen the Badgers secondary susceptible to the long ball. We saw it especially in the game against Illinois and the follow-up against Ohio State. And I I think if Morgan gets into a groove, it's going to be really scary for the Badgers. The other thing that I'm really interested about is which one of these teams will end up getting to control the clock. Because you have two of the top four teams in the country in time of possession. Wisconsin leads the way holding the ball for 36 and a half minutes a game. Minnesota is ranked fourth uh, with more than 34 minutes of possession on average. So something has to give here. And uh, honestly, I think it's it, Jonathan Taylor is going to do it. It's it's his day. It's his last chance to get to a, to to make his case for getting to Manhattan for the Heisman ceremony. He put in a big game last week. And I, I think he's going to go over 200 yards again against Minnesota, uh, repaying the favor after Minnesota took back Paul Bunyan's axe on the road in Madison last year. Uh, the Badgers will get their revenge and win in Minneapolis by, uh, I'm going to say, three points, cover that spread. I, I think it's a close game, but I think it's, you know, something like 27-24 Wisconsin to get their way back to Indianapolis. Well, I, you know, it's interesting because I think the winner of this game might have the inside track for the Rose Bowl. I don't think either of us believe that either of these teams has a real shot at beating Ohio State next week in Indianapolis as much as you would hope Wisconsin could do that. But making the Big Ten title game, it would definitely be enough for Minnesota, I think, to clinch a spot in the Rose Bowl. Wisconsin results may vary with them having two losses already coming in when you've got Penn State sitting on the other side of that. Uh, I'm going to ensure that at least one that each of us has a little bit of bragging rights next week. I'm going to take Minnesota just uh, just for the hell of it, to be honest. I think, like you said, Wisconsin's secondary could be susceptible to the big plays in the passing game like we've seen before. Tanner Morgan's had a great season. He's got 2,000-yard receivers this year in Tyler Johnson and Rashad Bateman. I think one or both of those guys is going to make a big play that ends up turning this game. I agree with you that Jonathan Taylor is going to have a big game. That doesn't always matter for Wisconsin because it feels like he's having a big game every single week no matter no matter what's going on. I just don't know if I have enough faith in Jack Cohn to go on the road and make enough plays in the passing game to beat the Gophers. 
I think Antoine Winfield Jr. makes a big play in the secondary to seal the game. Close game into the fourth quarter. Minnesota wins 24-20 on an interception in the end zone by Winfield to seal the game. And the boat rose on to Indianapolis, led to the slaughter against Ohio State. It certainly wouldn't shock me. Just like you're not entirely confident in Alabama, I certainly am picking with my heart with Wisconsin. So maybe let that be an object lesson to you all out there if you're planning to lay bets. Maybe don't always lay them for your favorite teams. With that said, take that to heart as we go to our second break. We'll be right back to uh, go over what we got wrong in week 13 before offering our upsets and our locks and our dining suggestions. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back for our last edition of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We're going to switch gears and go back to week 13 uh, for just a quick hot minute as we look at the garbage we dealt out. I, I'll, I'll lay it out there. I was 3-4 and four last week. It was not the prettiest week of my season by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the biggest blunder of mine last week was picking UCLA as my upset pick of the week, plus 10 against USC. You know, I was looking at it as the Trojans really did not have much of a chance of getting to the Pac-12 title game. They still could technically if Utah beats Colorado this week, or if Colorado, pardon me, They still have a chance, obviously, if Colorado knocks off Utah this week, but I don't think anybody imagines that happening. I'll be picking that as my biggest surprise next week if it does. Um, But yeah, I expected the Bruins to at least keep this game close. I didn't necessarily think that they would win it outright, but I thought that they came into this game as the, the hungrier team that needed to win to stay bowl eligible. And they've looked good in recent weeks, especially with Joshua Kelly running the ball. But USC held them to 45 yards and only one touchdown. And they trounced their crosstown rival 52-35. The victory bell will be painted Cardinal red for the next year. And the season's going to end early for Chip Kelly and crew after next week's other rivalry duel against Cal. Uh at the Rose Bowl. So, unfortunately, you know, a a surprise season in Westwood comes to an early end, but I didn't expect it to be quite that ugly in that rivalry game. So, that's my garbage of the week, or at least the worst of my garbage of a four-loss week. How about you, John? What looked terrible on your picks last week? spreads last week and one of the biggest ones that jumped out to me was North Texas only being a four-point favorite over Rice Um, so you know I jumped all over that said put everything you got on North Texas to to cover that spread even if it was bet up to seven to ten points and then North Texas goes out and just outright loses to Rice last week which was honestly right in contention for my biggest surprise of the week as well I just chose to save it to be able to talk about in this segment 
North Texas had to win this game to have any shot of bowl eligibility. You speak of disappointing teams in college football this year. There hasn't been many more disappointing than North Texas. Returning Seth Luttrell as head coach after almost leaving Denton last year, but also bringing back Mason Fine at quarterback as good of a year as he had last year. And for North Texas to be 4-7 and seven through 11 games is just outright stunning. They had a real shot. They could have beaten Rice. It would have all come down to a home game against UAB for bowl eligibility. But I was stunned. You know, Rice is now 2-9 and nine on the season. I didn't think that even at home the Owls had much of a chance at beating North Texas last week. So that was my garbage week. I was very bullish on North Texas' chances of covering easily against Rice last week, and Rice pulled the outright victory. Yeah, that was a that was a wild game. I certainly did not see it coming at all. When you pointed out that game, I I, I was right there with you, seeing it as an absolute lock. And uh, it, 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 anybody who picked Rice, way to go! Um, but you were definitely cutting against the grain if you did so. As much as it was a shocker to see that happen, I, I, I don't think you can uh, knock yourself down too many pegs for that one. So let's, you know, with that said, you know, we, we, we've vented our, uh, our bad mojo from last week. So let's, let's go ahead and see if we can get it right this week. Um, what do you have as your upset for Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, you talked, we talked about this game a little bit early on. Um, the Apple Cup this year. Um, I can't remember either how many games in a row Washington's won. I know that Chris Peterson is undefeated in the Apple Cup so far in his career at Washington. So he's really had Mike Leach's number. Um, Leach has yet to win an Apple Cup while he's been in Pullman. I think this is the year, Zach. I really do. I said this last year as well, but I really think this is the year just because it's kind of disappointing as it's been for Washington State this year. I think they were hoping to be better than 6-5 and five coming into the final weekend of the regular season. They haven't looked like a team that's ever quit to me. They look like they've fought pretty hard every single week. They've had some really tough competitive losses that we've seen throughout the season, like the two-point loss in Eugene against Oregon, a four-point loss to Arizona State, a four-point loss to to UCLA. So this team, I think, fights every single week. I can't say the same thing from Washington. They look like a team, especially last week, that's quit. I think it's absolute craziness that Washington opened as an eight-point favorite in the Apple Cup, even at home this year. So I thought last year was the Cougars' this year. I think this year is actually the Cougars' this year. I think Anthony Gordon will have a big day through the air. Washington will fail to put it together again, and the Huskies are going to finish 6-6, six and six, and Mike Leach is finally going to win an Apple Cup. So I don't just like Washington State to cover the eight-point spread. I like the Cougars to win outright. You know, it's it's funny that you mentioned Washington State not seeming to quit this year because I remember Mike Leach going off about a month and a half ago about having the most pampered, entitled, coddled team he'd ever seen uh, that was just a bunch of basically nobodies who could get nothing done on the field and, and had no business being out there. Um 
I, I think they made him swallow his words because they have definitely uh, responded and made him look even sillier than he did at the moment when he ranted that. So I, I'm with you there. I, I think the way these two teams' trajectories have gone and the way they're coming into this final week, it's it, it, it's definitely... Uh, the stars are aligning. If Mike Leach can't win it this year, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. So, I, I I think it's a great pick. And one that has me as well is another rivalry game. Uh, Louisville will be heading to uh, Lexington to face Kentucky as a three-point underdog. But... They've already locked up second place in the ACC Atlantic behind Clemson, finished 5-3 and three in conference play. Louisville's locked into a bowl game, and I think the thing that has me really high on this Cardinals team this year is that they boast the nation's ninth most efficient pass offense despite cycling through multiple quarterbacks this year. That alone is just a total mind-blower the way that you've seen them go from one to another. And yes, they're going to be tested by a decent Wildcats defense and by an especially strong Kentucky rushing attack. But Kentucky just doesn't score enough points to keep up with the Cardinals. And I, I think the fact that they're underdogs in this game is great for the better. Look for them to win by somewhere around a touchdown in this contest. I could see it around like 31-24, but I I think they're going to handily cover the spread. They're going to win outright, and they're going to give the ACC a little bit of bragging rights in some of those ACC-SEC rivalry games that we see on this final weekend. Yeah, I think that's a really good pick. Um, ACC Coach of the Year, Scott Satterfield. I'd be shocked if anyone else won that award. The Louisville was not projected by anyone to be a bowl team this year. Um, really impressive debut season for him. Really turning around. I like that pick a lot. I think Louisville wins the game outright as well. So, yeah, I'm fully on board. You know, it's funny because in our first segment, we talked about getting it right with Hawaii. We definitely did not get it right with how we thought Louisville was going to do this year. Definitely a pleasant surprise from the Cardinals. And to be fair, no one else did either. No, 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 no. Yeah, I don't think that's one we can beat ourselves up about at all. But like I said, just a nice, pleasant surprise to see him actually do well this season. It, it, it's been a rough time in that post-Lamar Jackson, post-losing Papa John's endorsement world for, for Louisville. And uh, this is a good upswing for them, for sure. Moving on to the locks of the week, I, I'll go first this time. I, I, I think Boise State's just going to crush Colorado State. They're headed to Fort Collins as a 13-point favorite. I could easily see that double that as the final margin of victory. The Broncos showed in Week 13 on the road against Utah State that they're determined to make as many statements as possible for the College Football Playoff Selection Committee. And this is the year that they they know it's boomer bust. It's right there for them. They win the Mountain West against Hawaii. 
on that first weekend of December, they're right there in the thick of the race. And the way the AAC has beaten up on itself a bit, you could easily see Memphis beating Cincinnati this week and then Cincinnati going back to the Liberty Bowl and beating Memphis the following week and opening the door wide open for Brian Harson's team. And they're not going to pass up that opportunity. They're they're gonna they're gonna crush the Rams this week, especially after we saw Wyoming beat up on them in the border war on on last Friday. So uh, yeah, I think the Broncos win this one by at least twenty five points on the road to really get themselves jazzed up and ready to go against the Rainbow Warriors. I think what's important there too, Zach, is that Boise State knows they need style points because I think they're behind a one-loss AAC champion at this point. So they know they need to win. They know they need to win convincingly. So I, I, I love that pick from that perspective because I think Boise State knows a close win over Colorado State does them no favors. A three or four touchdown win over Colorado State maybe gets the committee's attention, though. Um, I don't know what it is with Vegas's infatuation with Nebraska, but I've been – happily taking money all season long because of it. Iowa Open is only a three-point favorite heading to Lincoln to play the Cornhuskers this week. Nebraska obviously has a lot to play for because a win would get them bowl eligible for the first time under Scott Frost. I just don't see that happening in any way, shape, or form. The Cornhuskers, you know, maybe Vegas was impressed last week that they went to Maryland and rolled over the Terps, but, I mean, so was everyone else all season long, save for that weird early September action that made people think Maryland was a contender. Um, Nebraska just hasn't been a good football team this year. Another team that we kind of got right in the preseason is we told everybody to pump the brakes on Nebraska being a potential Big Ten East contender this year. I just don't see any way Nebraska's offense, Adrian Martinez and those guys, can do enough against Iowa's defense to stay in this game I think Iowa's defense dominates I Nate Stanley makes some plays as we've seen him make you know Iowa's had a couple impressive wins the last couple of weeks beating a bowl team like Illinois and handing it Minnesota their only loss of the season so far I was just demonstrably the better team their offense their defense will be suffocating their offense will make some plays I like the Hawkeyes by two touchdowns 27-13 I think they get the easy cover that's my lock of the week yeah, I don't see what in the world Vegas is thinking there with Nebraska at all. They've been bullish on them all season long, and it's bit them in the ass. And I'm with you. It'll probably bite them one more time just to close out November with a bang. Speaking of closing out November, though, we've got Thanksgiving tomorrow, John, and obviously lots of good eats going there uh, to get people prepared for the Egg Bowl and everything. Um, But heading into Black Friday, obviously, I'm sure we'll be eating a lot of Thanksgiving leftovers. But for Saturday, do you have anything specific that you're thinking you want to make sure that you're chowing down on? One of my favorite post-Thanksgiving days, just make just a plain old turkey sandwich on white bread covered in hot sauce. I don't know what it is about that. That's been a tradition my family's done for years and years. As long as we've got leftover turkey, you know, when it's time for lunch, you grab a couple pieces of white bread, maybe toast it if you're feeling fancy. Um, If not, just without doing that, throw in some pieces of turkey on there. Maybe a slice of cheese or something like that if you're feeling even fancier. But if not, 
just dousing the thing in as much hot sauce as you can legally be allowed to put on a sandwich. So I love a good hot sauce and turkey sandwich. I look forward to that every year. Um, I'm not obviously making anything special for the weekend because we'll be eating Thanksgiving food um, starting Thursday for probably a good four or five days to get rid of everything. So that's one of my favorite post-Thanksgiving staples that I'm going to be munching on in this in my house, Zach. And then for in terms of drinks, um, I, the first time I made yellow hammers was last year during the Iron Bowl. That turned out to work out as Alabama rolled. So I'm going to make some yellow hammers again this year, uh, get some pineapple juice, some orange juice, get some rum and some amaretto to go in there that together make a big picture of yellow hammers for this weekend um and get that ready for the iron bowl damn those sound good i might have to uh have to whip up some of those myself soon uh you know i'm with you as well uh, the one thing i gotta ask is what's your hot sauce of choice that'd be crystal hot sauce nice definitely a good choice for me, yeah, it, it's one of those things where the leftovers are always tons of fun. As somebody that worked in, in restaurants for a lot of years, obviously working with leftovers and figuring out new creative ways to eat the same thing again is always huge. But for me, my favorite way to always use those Thanksgiving leftovers is making a huge pot pie. So that's what I'm going to be doing. You know, just a simple three, two, one crust, three parts flour, two parts butter, one part cold water. Very simple crust. Get a good, you know, flaky crust going. Uh, my wife always has me making uh, homemade mushroom gravy for green bean casserole. So we've always got that leftover. Um, whatever leftover turkey gravy as well we've got there. It's a good base just to, to get those flavors together. But a pot pie is always a great way to use a leftover turkey, use leftover green beans from the casserole. If you've got roasted vegetables, you can throw them in there. Basically, you know, so much of those Thanksgiving flavors can get thrown right in. And when you get to eat something with a, you know, wrapped in a crust, you can't go wrong. So that's what I'm going to be doing with uh, with what we've got of the bird left over, or at least some of it, because it, it sounds like some of our guests won't be here, so we'll probably have a lot of extra turkey. Um, so maybe we'll end up making two pot pies. But to go with that, I actually uh, was fighting a cold this past week as I headed into Thanksgiving week. And so I was drinking a lot of ginger lemon brews and I've acquired a taste for it, but I'm going to switch it up just to keep myself in maximum health heading into December. Uh, basically the way I do this is, you know, you get about a half pound of ginger, just get a couple of really nice, good sized roots, hack them up, doesn't matter how pretty it is, just a good rough cut, throw them in with a generous amount of honey and about a gallon of water in a pot, bring it up to a boil, drop it down to a simmer for about an hour, add three or four lemons that are cut in half and just throw them in, throw the halves in there for like the final five to ten minutes of simmering, strain it and cool it. And then, yeah, I'm going to be making ginger lime whiskey sours out of it. So you get one part whiskey to one part of this ginger brew and then a couple of parts of limeade on the rocks. It's pretty amazing stuff. So 
I think it'll be a nice, uh, nice way to keep my immune system back up as I head into the final few weeks of this, the uh, fall semester here on campus here at Penn State. And uh, I've been sick a lot this term, so I think I might as well just keep drinking ginger as long as possible and finding new fun ways to do it. And I think a whiskey sour sounds like a great way to go with it. So that's what I'm going to be doing to go with pot pie as we feast on Saturday. That sounds great. I, uh, nice way to stay healthy and keep a buzz going throughout a nice Saturday. Um, I don't know if I'm more intrigued to drink that or the mushroom gravy you were talking about earlier. <laughs> I, it, it, it's some, it, it's a damn fine gravy. I've been perfecting that since I did since I, before I started professionally cooking, um, it was something I used to make at home, you know, as, as a high schooler. And, uh, it was one of those things cause like green bean casserole traditionally, you know, you just get your can of soup and you get your, your, your fried onions and whatnot. And I, I kind of upped the game on that. And I think I've spoiled my wife and pretty much anybody that comes around, but I got into cooking because I wanted to cook stuff I actually wanted to eat, and that's definitely something I enjoy eating. So yeah, I, I make the mushroom gravy from scratch. Usually get two to you know at least two different types of mushrooms. I prefer to get three or four. Get some just some creminis, some some it's some chanterelle if I can find them. Um, but get like a good portobello. Get some button mushrooms. You know, get a good mix. The more the merrier. But then. Healthy dose of garlic, healthy dose of shallots, let those simmer down with the mushrooms. Uh, I add a little bit of stock. I actually just finished making some chicken stock a couple of days ago, so I'll probably add a little bit of that to the base. Uh, some heavy cream and uh, let it simmer down and, and thicken up. Add a little bit of roux. I try not to too much when I go with heavy cream because it works as a great thickener itself. Um, and then, yeah, toss out with some fresh green beans. And then I also like fresh frying my French fried onions. So I, cause I like them spicier than you can ever seem to buy them. So I'll mix up a good flour coating with, with cayenne and, and garlic and onion and the seasoning and, and really get a little heat in there for the top, that nice crispiness. But yeah, having that leftover as well. I make a huge batch of that mushroom because having that for Popeyes as well is always really nice. And now I'm starving. Well, on that note, everybody, I'll let you head into your Wednesdays before Thanksgiving with a, a nice grumbling belly now. And uh, we'll uh, head in and just say we hope you have the most wonderful Thanksgiving possible and enjoy this last week of the regular season. Cherish it because it is our last week of the regular season for another nine months, another eight months down the road. Uh, we obviously get the postseason, but there's something about these action-packed weekends that just can't be beat. So revel in it while you can. And we'll be back next weekend after Thanksgiving to uh, talk with you again and pack up the grill on what I'm sure is going to be another chaotic weekend and get you ready for championship week. Thanks for tuning in again, everybody. From the Saturday Blitz podcast, I'm Zach Bogalki. Have a wonderful day.